On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group welcomes friend of the Palaver, Mark Anthony Kay, to discuss Pink Floyd Lessons Learned. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this special episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory as we welcome friend of the Palaver, Mark Anthony Kay, to discuss his thoughts on Pink Floyd. Always good Welcome. to have you on, my friend. It's great to be here, and I truly am a friend because I have the mug to prove it. That's yes, right. Sir. Ooh, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> we <laughs> we're, we're That's working right. on uh, we're working on new giveaways at this point. Yeah, wait, but... wait till we send you a beach towel. And... <laughs> oh, that's is that the next product in in line? I we've, don't think so. They're not going to let me. We've, we've threatened. <laughs> <laughs> we're uh we're, we're gearing up right now for our mm. our official episode 100 extravaganza and Ooh. so we're trying to uh to to get some things in order maybe uh to support that but you know we'll see fantastic that's always a that's always a big milestone and congratulations ahead of time for oh, that, well, guys. thank you Thanks. This episode might actually come out after that. So no, 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 absolutely not. So IMP only needed two years to achieve the 100th episode. Well, I mean, keep in mind we that we're talking 100 official episodes. I think our Hmm. actual published content is like 160 or something like that, with all the bonuses and specials. Oh yeah, everything else. But in in terms of in terms of our core mission of album by album. More like a used Carlisle. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to sell you the undercoat, you know, some upholstery cleaning, uh, you know. You want the roadside assistance with that? We got you yeah. covered. But uh, yeah, it, it should be, uh, it, it, it's it's certainly going to be something. But, um, you know, and, and obviously for listeners, uh, I hope for obviously uh, listeners of the Palaver, you know, they, they should be familiar with you, Mark. Um, you know, they, they know you from the Yes Music podcast, the KISS FAQ podcast, your wonderful work with Project Gemini, and most recently, The Dark Monarchy as well. So it, always happy to, uh, to have you on. And for me, as, you know, at, you know, being one of the hosts of this podcast, I absolutely love these lessons learned episodes because I don't really have to do any work um, mm-hmm. in preparation for it, which is nice. I can just have a friendly conversation. And, you know, the rules of the engagement are, you know, as we finish up these big segments, we like to have friends of the Palaver on to give, you know, their thoughts overall on the band or the catalog or anything that they want to talk about. So tonight we're, we're getting thoughts on Pink Floyd. So Mark, before we got on air, you were showing us, you know, the, the uh, material with which you were preparing presumably for this. And there was a notable exception. Actually, there were two Mm. notable exceptions, but care to uh, talk about what you didn't listen to. Well, um, let me let me uh, first of all say that the two that are missing 
from my CD is obviously more. And um, geez, what was the name of that one again? See, I don't even I don't even listen to it. I've never I don't think I've ever owned it. Uh, help me out, guys. The, the final cut. Record. Really? I've got like four oh, the final cut. Him. That's it. Right. Yeah. So. You, but you, I'll, I'll, you probably I'll, I'll have eight, eight different vinyl copies of every Yes album in the world, and you don't have any copies of the final cut. I can't wait to hear. Well, the interesting thing is I have most of those, including more I have on vinyl. Um, I don't have the final cut on vinyl, and I don't have the wall on vinyl either. But wow. I have it on CD. But um, here, here's the thing. That was, that was going to be my one question for you tonight. Was What's that? I, I wanted to know what was in the liner notes of your your wall <laughs> vinyl because I just assumed that you had like an original pressing. So I just I... <laughs> no, I, I don't, and and I'll and I'll explain. I kind of gotten sick of the wall at one point. I mean, let, mm. let's put it this way: everybody seems to talk about two records, Dark Side of the Moon, and the Wall. And to me, the difference is the Dark Side of the Moon is actually a really good record, and the Wall really isn't, in my opinion. Now, hmm. uh, why is that, in my opinion? Because I think Roger Waters should have left the singing to David Gilmore, and not his croaking, out of pitch singing that he does in most of the record. I just can't stand Roger Waters. <laughs> Okay, the man is annoying. Okay, oh, so you will get himself. along great with this crowd. And, <laughs> wow, and, and honestly, this is—it's just the, the more I hear him sing, the, the less I like it. Now, now I'll say one thing: the Wall has fantastic production. My hats off to Bob Ezrin. In fact, he did one of the one really interesting studio trick that I learned from him when I was still working back with tape was that he recorded all the drums and bass guitar to 16 track, two inch tape, made a stereo mix of that, dumped it to a 24 track tape, and did all the overdubbing on that tape and preserved the audio fidelity of the drums in the bass on the 16 track. And that's why those drums sound so fantastic. And that bass guitar sounds so great on that album because he didn't, you know, use the tape and spin it back a thousand times for overdubs and stuff like that. Because you can, you know, that when Roger's singing, he probably had to do like 5,000 takes of each song, you know? (laughs) So that's, you know, I think it was a wise move on, on uh, Bob Ezrin's part. That is cool. That is cool. So I'm, I'm guessing that some of you are not agreeing with my views on the wall. I'm curious who is not in agreement. I, I opted to be the apologist for Roger Waters at the very beginning of this whole segment. And I, I stepped up in a couple of places. Now, mm-hmm. the week that we did Final Cut, I didn't realize we were doing Final Cut. And I hadn't done my homework, but I love it so much. I kind of you know did that episode from memory um, because I am a Roger Waters fan. Mm-hmm. I do appreciate his politics. I do appreciate his croaking voice. I do appreciate so much about Roger Waters. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it's, you know, just me against two or three or four, it gets to be tough. Let me tell you. <laughs> Roger. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I, pr- I pretty much agree with your general uh, uh, disposition with Roger Waters. But I will say that I, that I 
do love the wall. I think as an album, it is one of the greatest. I love the production. I love, I, I, I love the, I love the whole thing. So, uh, and I, and I actually feel like that's the one album where like Roger, his vocals are like, I actually really appreciate them and, and think they're terrific. So uh, the album, I probably disagree with you more, mm -hmm. uh, but as far as your characterization of Roger Waters, I'm, I'm pretty much with you 100%. It, and it, it's interesting. There, there are a couple of funny things about that. So obviously you haven't heard necessarily. Um, you may have heard the first episode, but we're, I'm in the middle right now of editing our three episodes <laughs> on the studio album of the wall. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so regardless of, of how you feel about it, we certainly have a lot to say about it. And, and, you know, given your, the way you expressed your views of Roger and his singing, it makes perfect sense why the final cut doesn't really ping on your radar. Because, you know, the, I think the one thing about the wall with regard to Roger's voice, and we talked about this in, in our episodes, is the juxtaposition with Gilmore vocally that, that sort of, you know, I can understand would maybe make that more palatable. I personally have had an ongoing sort of internal struggle with Roger throughout this segment. And in fact, there is a, a famous among the palaver unpublished rant that I went on um, <laughs> regarding Roger and a lot of his views on things. <laughs> so, uh, it, it basically took our YouTube show, the palaver pre-show to a screeching halt. That, uh, <laughs> that rant. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm highly impressed. <laughs> you know me; I'm not one to hold back on my views. So, <laughs> yeah, this wasn't this was not my most eloquent expression of my feelings. So, but be that as it may. So, and one of the things that you mentioned uh, specifically, and, and actually, the um, when I was mentioning two albums that were missing from your stack. I, I hadn't picked up that more wasn't there. So actually there are three, but more is one of those albums that I just absolutely fell in love with. So I'm, I'm sure I know the answer to this question, but when you have more on vinyl, I was amazed to find that that's actually available on a new, you know, one of these new 180 gram pressings. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you have the original pressing. Uh, no, I okay. have the 180 gram okay. one that came out now. Um, I had, the original in my hand a couple times it's just at that point i wasn't really too familiar with it now in retrospect now that i've kind of you know more familiar with that record you know it, it is one that if i see again and i've been lucky here in my neck of the woods to see it in a few record stores i will pick it up because i'm one of those people that you know has to have like seven copies of one record right mm -hmm. so um and, and i have multiples of dark side of the moon and uh I actually have a multiple of the 180 gram Dark Side of the Moon because I found out through the grapevine that there are two pressings of it. One that was that came out in the United States, and on it, if you you know that big huge sticker that they have on there that lists you know oh 180 grams blah 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 on the front, it doesn't say on there that it was cut from the original master tapes. Now that wasn't a printing error. That was a fact that that wasn't done from those really? ones. Wow. And there's another one that was printed and done that was released in the German market that the guy that I know at the record store got it imported over to his store. And that one was cut from the original analog tapes. So there are two floating around. And if you look at them, one 
was mastered by the, the obvious people that you know that do it bernie grunman right and then there was another guy who did it at a, and he died recently i forget the name of that gentleman but he was a, he was a mastering guy that did it and it was at the it was a the mastering lab wow. yeah he he was the one tml you'll see that in the dead wax and when you see that that was the one that was uh not done from the original tapes of the done digital source well see that's kind of like nerd audio things there right you know like i'm sure that most people that buy these records are probably like who cares you know it sounds good on my stereo system that's all i care about right right but you know i i've kind of went down that rabbit hole early in my getting back into collecting vinyl like it got so bad mm. to the point of when i was collecting kiss vinyl that i was doing a list and i had like 66 pages of the dead wax variations from kiss records like oh there were God. like 17 different dead wax variations of rock and roll over and people in the kiss uh, facebook pages were going insane they're like i i can't keep up with this you know like <laughs> how is there so many different variations it's like well i can't vouch that their audio wise sound different but there are differences in the identification of them right uh, so yeah. sometimes that means that you know the lacquers are recut and, you know, sometimes who, the guy who's working at it, you know, he might, you know, put the treble frequencies up on plus six as opposed to plus four, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't follow it by the letter, right? So sometimes there might be minor variations and that kind of thing drives KISS collectors insane <laughs> that they don't have that one that has a four instead of six, you know, top end on it. Oh, my you know? gosh. So is, is if, while we're on this subject then, I mean... Are the is the Pink Floyd catalog as varied, or is it much more straightforward? Well, so there are some records like you know Dark Side of the Moon. If you go on Discogs and look at how many different variation pressings there are that record, yeah, I mean you know besides like let's say you know Sergeant uh, Sergeant Pepper, which has like four to five hundred variations floating around. Good lord, you know you, it would be it would take you forever to collect them all. You know what I mean? So uh, I kind of always did this kind of approach where I was like, I wanted to collect the Canadian, uh, the U.S. and the British ones for sure, and definitely get a Japanese one because the Japanese ones always sound fantastic, even though they're very expensive to get. Like I see on Dark Side, I saw Dark Side of the Moon Japanese pressing that was going for like 110 bucks on my record store. I was like, wow, really? Like that's a lot of money for a record, you know? For a record that you already have three copies of, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and yeah. Th that's true. But you know what? I'm going to just say this, and it kind of made me kind of blush, but at the same time, I felt kind of uneasy about this. Somebody had bought a Ordinary Day Project Gemini vinyl, and somebody was actually selling a copy, and it sold for like 90 bucks. Did it wow. really? Yeah. I was, I was I like, was, what? We have an ongoing gag that's sort of built up over the course of this segment. So I feel obligated at this point to ask you on your thoughts of the influence and importance of Sid Barrett to the Pink Floyd catalog as a whole. <laughs> I, I think it's definitely uh, ongoing because, I mean, the, the one thing I've noticed about Pink Floyd, and I have, you know, a few different DVDs of these, you know, you know, the kind of DVD collections where they have all these interviews somebody's collected over the years and they burnt this rather obscure DVD and it's questionable if it's even partially official or it's really unofficial, you know what I mean? And, uh, He's mentioned very often, especially by David Gilmore. I find that he's very loyal to to Sid Barrett's memory in Pink Floyd. 
And I mean, so was Roger Waters. I mean, I know that whenever I watch uh, some of the concerts that he's done as a solo artist, that yes, I have watched them. I'm not that much of an anti-Roger Waters person. Uh, I have watched them. Uh, and he does mention him, especially when they do, you know, shine on you crazy diamond and stuff like that. He is mentioned. So I think he's a, a powerful force in the music. You know, when you hear like those stories, like how he magically appeared at a recording session, you know, bald and, you know, 250 pounds and they didn't even recognize him. You know, it's, it's when things like that happen, you can't help but have him etched in your memory. I'm sure if you're those guys, you know? Yeah. And, and one of the things about that, that I think sort of, comes out and it's 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 a recurring theme at least it's somewhat recurring in some of the things that we have done and and this idea of of young men you know in their mid to early 20s who are caught up in this in this band identity and everything else just sort of steamrolling over everything else and then realizing later on in life Wow, maybe we should have done that differently. That came up obviously a lot in the early Genesis story, and you know, watching some of the interviews that we've watched, it's come up, you know, with regards to Sid. Now, I think, I, I think, you know, obviously the the band members tried to help Sid maybe more than you know some of the guys in Genesis were were um, were into helping out, you know, Peter or or Steve or whoever at that time, but ultimately. You know, they they did have to make the decision to sort of, you know, stop trying to do that for whatever reason. And and yeah, I, I, I you know, I recall in, in several later interviews them, you know, expressing a certain amount of regret over how that happened. And I guess ultimately it manifested itself in the what it was, the, the Sid Barrett, you know, benefit concert or whatever it was shortly after mm-hmm. he died. I know David speaks very fondly about about that show and things that went on there. So yeah, it's it, it just, it's, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to talk about Pink Floyd, you have to talk about it. Now, that being said, you know, I found, I, I, I didn't know virtually anything about early Pink Floyd. And so when we started this and I got into, um, you know, Piper and, and Saucer Full of Secrets, I was a pleasantly surprised with what I found there and found that, you know, musically, I really kind of enjoyed what Sid brought to the table. I, I thought it was, it was really fun and enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, it's, it definitely has a sort of whimsical sort of, you know, borderline childish in spots. Uh, it is very whimsical. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, you take a song like bike, for example, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's a song I don't think would have appeared on any later Pink Floyd records, you know, that, that he didn't have any kind of, you know, influence on because it, it's just, you know, it, he has a style to him. I mean, Astronomy Domine is a song that I've always loved oh, that's so on good. that record. And, uh, you know, Pink Floyd's always done good versions of that later on, like when they were touring with uh, just David Sands Roger. And uh, there's also a, a fantastic cover of it done by Canadian metal band Voivod that did a, an incredible version of it, actually. Really? Uh, I heard that. I, I'd re- highly recommend you check it out. It's really fantastic. Um, but I, I think that, you know, that record, to me, when I look at the whole catalog, I can't help but kind of feel that it's on its own island from the rest of the discography. You know what I mean? It, it seems so different to me than what they 
continue to be? Because I think Roger Waters said it best that when he left, you know, they were Sansa songwriter because he was the one who was pretty much writing everything for them. So they had to go and do what their strengths were. And their strength was kind of sound effecty, kind of long jam kind of stuff. And then kind of hope to add vocals on top of it kind of thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So whereas he was a more pure songwriter. I mean, that's very yeah. evident if you listen to the songs that, he, that are on that first record, right? So I, I think that, you know, it's it's one of those records I find interesting. Like lots of bands, when, you, when they look back to their first record, they always say, oh, you know, we were so young and we were so this and that. But I think this album kind of shows that they were almost a totally different band, in my opinion, at that time. Yeah, and it, it certainly took them some time to forge who they were going to be yeah. after Sid, you know, and, and it's, you know, I, I've, I've found it to be an interesting sort of study as we've gone through this. One thing I'm kind of curious about to ask you guys is as you guys have gone through this catalog, is there one album in the catalog that at first you were kind of like, eh, on, but as you went back and listened to it, you kind of changed your opinion on? I, I personally had a couple of experiences maybe like that and one is going to sound extremely blasphemous and and one is is maybe less so the the first the first real example i had of that was more i didn't even know more existed i didn't know mm. what it was and yeah. and more is not you know i'm not going to claim that more is the strongest album in the catalog by any stretch of the imagination and and it honestly it wasn't until i watched the the crazy movie that goes with it. Mm -hmm. But I yeah. absolutely fell in love with, with that, with that album. Mm -hmm. And I, I still, uh, ever since then, I will walk around singing Cymbeline just, you know, whenever <laughs> can't help myself. And, and the other example that I had, and it wasn't that I didn't like it, but I, I personally never had a full appreciation for just how freaking brilliant dark side really was. I recognized it as like a seminal album and everything else, but I, I personally did not understand the the sheer magnitude of its brilliance in terms of so many different facets and all of the research and lore that went into that episode or those episodes. Really, you know, it it, it opened my eyes with regards to that record. Interesting. What about you two? I guess we had the the guys had interviewed and talked with uh, Joe Cass from Total Mass Retain about the Nick Mason Mason show um, Saucer mm -hmm. Full of Secrets, and after yeah. that, I you know I started listening to that record, and I just was kind of like, meh. But when we went through the you know our segment here, I was amazed at how much I loved that that record, and during our segment. I I went 180 degrees around Adam Hart Mother, um, <laughs> which turned out to be kind of a controversial uh, album album for us overall. But um, but the interesting thing for me is Nick Mason. I never, in all of my years of listening to Pink Floyd, I just kind of always missed the brilliance that he brings in, in his drumming. Yeah, I, I mentioned in one of our episodes that he's almost like the Ringo Starr. He's easily overlooked, but you know when you pay attention to what he does, it's it, it's fantastic. So, um, I for me, 
the probably going through the catalog, particularly the old catalog, it was sort of the discovery of of how amazing that guy is. Hmm. Interesting. What about you, Ken? I'm the kind who plays the same song over and over again. So I go for the songs rather than the albums. Summer '68. Yes, was one of those. And then really discovering metal, really discovering echoes mm. was, was, was pretty seminal for me. Because, you know, none of us, you know, no matter who we knew in high school or how many siblings we had or whatever, I don't think we'd really gone back that far. And, and yeah. I, think, I think they actually opened up the 1987 concert with echoes. echoes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, I think, because, you know, I think it's very true. When people think Pink Floyd, you know, there's always just those certain songs that most people talk about. They talk about money and they talk about, you know, uh, another brick in the wall and stuff like that. You know, most people are familiar with those songs that became popularized either on radio or, you know, by the movie. You know what I mean? When that wall movie came out, you know, there are just certain parts of that movie that stuck in people's minds more than others, I would say. Um, so I'm not surprised at all. I mean, most people, when they talk about Pink Floyd and you say to them, you know, what, what are your views on more or Saucerful the Secrets? They're like, what? Like, they don't even know what those are. You know, at least the people in my circle over here, too. So, I mean, and you got to realize, too, like, I have it. I have the benefit of having the, all these records sitting in front of me right now. And I, when you look at the back of it, it, has the release date. It says original UK release date of the first album was August '67. That's a long time ago. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that, that, and, you know, there's uh, and people within our circle. You know, I, I don't know how many people would have picked up on these records until maybe they, you know, got into like Dark Side of the Moon and maybe wish you were here and then realize, hey, you know, there's a lot of records that I can go back to and check out. You know what I mean? So I'm not surprised when I hear people saying, oh, I just got into Echoes now, or I just got into Set the Control for the Heart of the Sun now. Mm. You know, because uh, unless you were around at that time period, you know, like I could only imagine like going to high school in the late 60s, you know, some guy coming into school saying, hey man, you checked out the new Floyd album. It's real (laughs) cool, dude. You know, and then maybe you would have heard like those songs, you know, Corporal Clegg or whatever. you know, but it's for for us, these songs are discoveries, and that's what I think is so fascinating because they're new to us, but yet they're so old. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things that that I sort of came across is, and and I tried to read Nick Mason's book while we were doing it. I I actually never made it through, uh, but but <laughs> Nick. Nick speaks very highly of the song "A Saucer Full of Secrets," which I was, I was like, "What? Huh?" And and if you listen to the episode that Ken and I did on that album, we basically lambast that entire track. Mm-hmm. And at the start of the whole COVID thing, when the official Pink Floyd YouTube channel, sorry Roger, was mm-hmm. releasing um, a, a concert oh, film concerts. every Friday, mm-hmm. I think the second or third one they did was live at Pompeii. And the version of A Saucer Full of Secrets on that that concert film is absolutely phenomenal. So whatever they were doing live, they weren't able to capture in the studio with regard to that track, at least. And I was blown away. Next question. 
one of the things that was in your stack is the somewhat controversial album here on the Palaver, Umaguma. So I'm mm -hmm. curious what your thoughts are on that particular album. Hmm. My particular thoughts on this now. Let me just look at this for one second because I think I have a good story with this one. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, this is the one. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna let the skeleton out of the closet here. Ooh, we like um, skeletons. <laughs> yeah. So this album was introduced to me when I was 30, 20, 24 years old. Okay. Now, why that's important is because I remember that at that time I had started seeing or you know in parentheses dating this hairdresser girl in Toronto who was 10 years older than me. Okay. All right. Cougar action. And, uh, right. Yeah. Well yeah. And, and she was pretty proud too, because she could tell all her older girls there that she was dating a pretty young guy. Okay. You know, long, a long haired musician guy. So she took me back to her apartment one night and she put this record on. Okay. And she put the live album part on first, obviously. When I started listening to it, I was like, okay, you know, it's cool. And then some heavy action started happening, okay? And right when it was getting hot and heavy, careful with that axe Eugene started, <laughs> okay? <laughs> now, now, I know people are going to look at look at their speakers or, you know, think in suspense or, or they're going to actually think to themselves, I can't believe I'm hearing this. But when that song was going through... I actually stopped action and said, what is this song? <laughs> I literally thought, I go, what is this? Like, I, it, it caught me so much, that song. Even when, especially when it, when it kicks in with that old, you know, whispered voice, careful with that axe, Eugene. Like, when that came up, I was like, what, what the hell is this? And literally, she became so annoyed with me that I stopped us halfway through because of this song that she never, ever put Pink Floyd out on the table when I was at her apartment ever again after wow. that point. Oh, my God. That is... So, I, I understand why you remember it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I vividly remember it because her look was not impressed. And she had a, a protection dog, like a, like a trained... But by the police German Shepherd. I don't know how she got this dog, but it was like, you know, voice command, like to the T, this dog. And she had to leave it on the balcony in a cage whenever I'd come there because he would be like, like whenever I came in. <laughs> and she was tempted to let him in. Let's just say that, like, after that happened, you know? Um, so, yeah, um, this album has stuck in my mind for numerous reasons, that one being one of them. But I, I honestly think, though, that. The live album part of it is fantastic. I really liked it. And I have to agree with you with what you said about the, you know, the live in Pompeii bit. Yeah. Because when I saw that performance of all the things that they did, including Echoes and that, my appreciation of them as a band, like, jumped. Like, huge. Because I agree, their live performances of their songs were way better than the studio versions of these songs. And I mm -hmm. think that a lot of them, that, like that video was responsible for me getting those records because when they just set the control for the heart of the sun, oh, yeah. I had not liked that song. But when I saw them do it on that one, I was like, this is really oh, yeah. fantastic. 
Yep. You know, and same with, you know, uh, saucer full of secrets. I mean, you know, you're talking about the secret weapon there, you know, Mr. Mason there on the drums. That's that's one of his highlights on that, that whole drum bit. I like you got to love that camera angle on top where he's doing that drum bit and you're filming him from over on top. You know, it's like this is really cool. Like, you know, and as a young musician at that time, when I started watching this stuff, I was like, this is really cool. Why, why have I not heard this stuff? You know, that was the first question that popped into my mind, you know. And more than once, not only just with her, but like, you know, with my friends when we were listening to stuff, you know, I was always wondering, where, why haven't I heard some of this stuff before? So um, as far as the studio album stuff, I, I, I don't know. I mean, when I heard that stuff the first time, I, I honestly thought they were just on some really bad acid trip or something, because some of these things that are on here is just, you know, like, I think to myself as a musician who was spending sometimes upwards of like 40 to $50 an hour for studio time back in the day and having to buy, you know, one and two inch tape for like three or 400 bucks a shot mm. that they would go in and there do stuff like the grand visitors garden party and stuff like that. I'm like, really? Like, give me that blank tape and I'll show you what I would do with that. You know, like, come on, like, or like several species of small furry animals gathered together in a cave and grooving with a pick. Like, Really, like that, like th those are the things that always kind of make me scratch my head about them. I mean, they, they're they're such a talented guys, and can write such fantastic songs. Why that? Yeah, they 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 did make some very curious decisions at that time. What's the uh, what's the track with the dog on metal? You know, metal is Seamus. such oh. Seamus. It, metal Seamus, is such a yeah. fantastic album, and then you've got the biggest stinker of all time. And you talk about a waste of tape. It's like, and, and I understand it was it was like probably funny <laughs> and it was a joke, but how that ever gets on the record that gets released is a m mind boggling to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, not only a waste of tape, but a waste of film. I mean, they did that also for the whole Pompeii thing. They had a little segment with the dog yeah. there. <laughs> I mean, really, they filmed that as well. I mean, you know, but at that point, I was kind of, you know, I gave it a pass because I was already so in awe of what they had done prior to that. You know, I was like, okay, whatever. This is maybe like a little intermission or something for them. But, you know, it, it's it, it just kind of showed me, uh, or better, better yet, I'll put it like this. They opened my eyes to experimentation you know that's the one thing that they really got me going with because you know i was into rush and you know those things and you know the sure i liked you know some of the things that they were doing you know alex lyson with that flanger for spirit of the radio and some of the sequencing that they did you know but you know when you have david gilmore sitting down on a dusty you know sort of dirt ground yeah fiddling around with pedals and stuff like that and a slide and stuff like that, it really kind of makes you wonder, hmm, maybe I'm not doing enough to explore the guitar. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because he was really going off the deep end sometimes with some of this stuff. And it works. But that's the thing. You gotta you you have to be daring enough to do it because you always gotta think in the back of your mind that while you might be lucky that it's been working all this time, there's always gonna be that one time where it's not gonna work out, that experiment. But you have to be fully willing to go in and expect that you know given you know what we think we know about the music industry today and everything else the fact that they were honestly given so much rope so to speak on the early part of their career because i, I mean there, there's a lot like you said there's a lot of experimentation a lot of things that were just unusual and you wonder you know you know 
They, it wasn't really, you know, metal, everything kind of starts to come together. You have that sort of little mini step back with obscured by clouds, which I think was, was for various explainable reasons. And then obviously in dark side, you know, it's like everything kind of came together in this magic moment. And from there you, you get into what we refer to as the main sequence where you just have, you know, one, you know, monster production after the next. So it, it's amazing that they were given that much leeway to do that for as long as they did. When you look at other other bands in, you know, in this sort of category, at least ones that we've talked about, you know, they they usually, you know, find themselves around album three or four, you know, and, and mm -hmm. you sort of figure out what it is. Pink Floyd didn't sort of figure it out. I don't even know, you know, what what metal or dark side are they're they're late in the catalog relatively speaking they're right around about the middle right yeah yeah they're so, about like seven or eight any thoughts on the ultimate divorce and whether or not a momentary lapse of reason and or the division bell are quote-unquote pink floyd oh don't get me started, <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> okay. let's go right. here though you, you stuck the quarter in. It's, 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 it's time to go. Okay, so are they Pink Floyd records? Yes, abs absolutely. And in fact, I'll go on record to say that for the longest, longest time, they were the two records I listened to the most from the Pink Floyd catalog. I, I really think that David Gilmore and Bob Ezrin, and, and you know, people who might be listening to this that listen to me on the on the. Uh, you know, Kiss Music podcast might be sitting there going, he's giving a lot of compliments to Ezrin because I'm known on that podcast for hating Bob Ezrin because of what he did to Destroyer. Right? <laughs> because I think he totally destroyed that Kiss album. Like he just completely ruined Kiss on that record. Anyways, but I think that overall, Bob Ezrin is a fantastic record producer. And I think he really showed that on those records. Now, sure, Momentary Lapse of Reason suffers from a little bit of dated sounding stuff like production wise why does everybody say i know because it 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 does i mean there's a lot of like you know 80ish kind of snare drum sounds and you know gated snares and kind of keyboards that kind of remind you of that kind of time period you know like soprano sax it sounds like yeah with a big reverb on it yeah yeah i mean there there are things on it that definitely make you go back and say, ah, oh, yeah, the good old days. Because I mean, when you listen to songs on there, like, um, like uh, I'm trying to think of the one song that kind of jumps out at me. Oh, One Slip. Oh, like yeah. that song is kind of the one that makes me think back to a little bit of data production. But it's interesting how timeless, to me at least, I mean, feel free to jump in and disagree. But it's I timeless. think that the, yeah. the Division Bell is absolutely dateless in my opinion i mean that record sounds just as good now as it did back when it was released and i think it probably holds some of the most fantastic pink floyd material on record you know i mean from the very beginning you know like what do you want from me i think it's one of the best openers on a pink floyd album ever you know i really love that song you know uh, and i mean everything on there i mean the, the, they that record they pretty much played the majority of a majority of a on tour yeah. when they were touring that record, that's got to tell you something. I mean, most bands, you know, and I'm not going to, you know, just for an example, like ACDC, like when I went and saw them, when they went on tour for blow up your video, they played 
one two songs from that album two two songs you know what i mean like that shows how much confidence they had in that record going out but you know i always appreciate bands like that when they go out make a record and they tour it and they play pretty much all of it i mean rush used to do that a lot too they used to play like you know six out of the eight songs on a record live when i'd see them and i i really admire that in bands now the divorce okay wait real quick mark i wanted to ask you real quick the um have you had a chance to go back and listen to the reworked uh pink floyd later years uh recordings because they kind of went back and tried to undo the datedness of momentary lapse of reason have you had a chance to uh no check that out no i haven't i'd be interested in your thoughts uh because i i went into it expecting oh okay this will be like the updated version of it and Mm -hmm. i felt myself longing for the sounds of the original uh record i just (laughs) i missed them oh really because i find this very interesting We're, we're entering this time period i think of albums not only being remastered, I think a lot of records are going to be remixed. I mean, I don't know if you guys... Well, I think I mentioned it to you guys once before that uh, David Bowie's Space Oddity record, the second record, got a full remix from Tony Visconti and mm-hmm. re-released. The 50th anniversary is an actual remix and remaster of that record. So it sounds really different mm-hmm. than the first version of it that came out. But I would, I am interested in hearing that because it is a like a strong favorite of mine. So I would like to hear what they did um, to it. Now, getting to the divorce, because I think the divorce was the best thing that happened to Pink Floyd, to be honest with you, because I think that Roger's head was getting a little too big to get through the door at one point here, because, you know, when you go and say you want, you want Roger, you want, uh, sorry, uh, Richard Wright out of the band, I mean, wow, that, that that to me is an offense, you know, that's unpardonable in my eyes. Because, I mean, Richard Wright, it, 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 to me, I, I think that he had a lot to do with what Pink Floyd was. And I don't need any more evidence of that than just simply putting on a David Gilmore live DVD, like let's say the one that he did uh, at the Royal Albert or that live in Poland, the yeah, dance. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Anytime they, he introduces the band, all he has to just say is just Richard Wright, and the whole place is standing and clapping, standing ovation. Because people know, like, this guy is responsible for a lot sonically of what made Pink Floyd so great. I mean, Roger's always the one to kind of, you know, pat himself on the back. Without me, this band would be nowhere. You know, don't forget when we were bankrupt and you know we're just about to be completely you know out of commission i stepped up with either the wall or you know pros and cons of hitchhiking you know thank god they went with the wall uh <laughs> that other record just whew, man that's a pile of dung that i don't want to listen to again man but you know i think that when that happened i seriously think that the power went to his head because let's put let's let's look back animals great record it's probably my number two favorite pink floyd album and and i'll admit it that is 95 percent roger waters musically lyrically you know but my favorite song on there is still dogs 
because I I love uh, David Gilmore singing on that. That's a that's a fantastic song. I mean, they're all good. That that whole record is fantastic. But I think that when that happened, you know, he started getting some you know extra spine growing there, and then he did the wall. That thing was pretty much all him, you know. And again, it, it did so well. That he again, he, think about it. When you're in that position and you have a record that does that good, you can turn around and say, "Okay, now you guys better just shut up and listen to me now," you know, because I just say their butts, and I'm going to do it again with the final cut, which he didn't. But you know, it's. I think that 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 was the problem is that he started saying, "Okay, you're not going to appear on here now. I don't want this guy here," you know, and it was really just David, you know. And I, I remember hearing that uh, Mr. Mason said that around the final cut period time that he he felt that he was like totally min- minimalized like he didn't even want a drum at one point that he just felt so you know bullied by Roger Waters at that time you know mm-hmm. and it and it I think it really affected him because when they went back and did momentary lapse of reason a lot of that record is not him on drums. Right. There are many session drummers and there's much programming going on there because he'll openly admit it himself saying that he was not in any shape to drum. Why do you think they brought out that other guy to drum? That guy who was dancing around and jumping up and down and hitting all those cymbals and playing that, you know, <laughs> they, they said that they brought him because they needed him to be the main drummer for the first end of that tour until Dave, or, or sorry, Mr. Mason there got settled into being the proper drummer that he was. And then near the tail end of that tour, he started getting comfortable. And by the time they did, you know, the division belt, he was the main guy again. And he was yeah. just like a support guy. So, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like these kind of things that Roger was doing really affected the band. I mean, why do you think David Gilmore to this day doesn't want anything to do with the guy, you know? I mean, could you imagine if you were a fly on the wall, what you would have maybe heard when these people were working on stuff? Yeah, and and you know, one of the things that I got into as we started this segment, and I've I've talked about it eighty five bazillion times every time we have an episode. But there was, um, you know, there was a, a four part podcast that came out in support of the later years box set called "The Lost Art of Conversation," and David goes into you know fairly good detail about you know, all that, that he was dealing with legally while they were recording that album. Yeah. And, and you know, it, I mean, obviously it's one side of the story, but it, it, it does paint, um, I think, a pretty compelling picture. And, you know, one of the things that kind of drives me crazy about Roger is he seems to have a wonderful knack for retconning you know, how everything goes down to sort of fit whatever worldview he has today. So, you know, that's just, it is what it is. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to lose a whole lot of sleep over it. I've, I've busted enough blood vessels worrying about Roger Waters recently, but I, I just, I find the whole thing to be, you know, fascinating. And it's, it's a shame because when you look at, you know, if you look at metal or dark side, um, you know, or animals, you know, there there was some magic there when the four of them were simpatico. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Yes. Yeah, uh, you're a hundred and fifty percent correct. Those records were them going for the same goal. That was the that was the main thing, and they they said it themselves. Once they re- achieved that success, they kind of looked at each other and said, "Okay, now what? 
You know what I mean? They didn't have a unified goal anymore. And that's when the turd starts hitting the fan is when that happens, yeah. right? Because when you're united with something, you work together and you kind of, you know, think to yourself, okay, what is the best thing for the band in this situation? And now when you have millions of dollars, six cars, you know, a huge house, you're not so necessarily thinking about, you know, what's the best for the band because, you know, you're comfortable. And it happens with most bands I see, you know, every band I can think of, I think kind of had that situation happen to them where they became so comfortable that, you know, they didn't need to worry about stuff. I mean, I think even Yes kind of fell into that time period. I think Tormato was a prime example of that. I mean, they were so, you know, they were on a high horse before because going for the one did so well, they got rigged back in the band. The tour was successful, you know, and it, it, it just happens, you know. I think Rush is one of those bands that I can think of that maybe didn't have that because they had the advantage of them being lifelong friends before Rush was even a thing, you know, Alex and Getty. You know, and then Neil just became that guy that was, you know, the long lost brother that they discovered. Right. And they and they just went with it their whole career. And they, they went through their records together. And, yeah, sure, they argued about stuff, but they were unified throughout their whole career. And I think that's one thing that Roger took away from Pink Floyd is that the unification, because I think that he thought all of a sudden, you know, his turd didn't smell anymore. You know, he was the guy that could do no wrong anymore in this band. So everybody better, you know, get in line and listen to what he has to say. And you know what? I think that that debate, and I'm really curious to hear your guys' opinion on this, but I think that this that debate between him and David ended when they started doing their solo careers. Because to me, On an Island is just one of the better albums I've ever heard. I really love that record. And I, and I find that kind of surprising. People kind of say, you really like that record? Well, yeah, I really do. Because I think it's such a well-done guitar album. And a, and a guitar album doesn't have to be, you know, a thousand miles an hour of soloing. And doesn't have to be a Dream Theater record to be a good guitar album. You know what I mean? He does a lot of great stuff. Lap steel, dobro stuff. You know, he even did a sax solo for crying out loud by yeah. himself on on that record. I mean, it's it's really well done. And you know, I, I'm not trying to rag on Roger here, but you know, his solo records I found were not good at all. I don't. I thought Pros and Cons was terrible. That Radio Chaos one that came after was that to talk about dated. There's a dated record there. But I mean, Amused to Death was better. I even have that actually, believe it or not on one of those, you know, deluxe hi-fi sort of CD versions of it. And it's 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 okay. I mean, it's not terrible, but I think it's he he got helped by, you know, Jeff Beck being on guitar for some songs and stuff like that. I think that really helped step up the game. And you know what? I I watched a lot of his later concerts like when he started bringing back a lot of the Floyd stuff in there and playing some of his stuff. In there and the bands that he had then was were really good like that Doyle Doyle Bromwell the third dude or whatever that oh, left-handed yeah, guitar player right. yeah he's uh, he's fantastic you know Snowy White was on guitar as well you know and uh, that band was really really good you know mm -hmm. Roger didn't need to do very much he had four great you know or three great uh, background girl singers that were amazing at that time you know. And, and later on, and I know I must have told you guys this a thousand times, but later on, he was helped very much by backing tapes, you know. So his show has always started getting better because he didn't have to really sing so much. He could just kind of mouth it along and it was fine, right? But 
you know, the, the bands, that's what I think kept me in with Roger as long as I've been is because his bands have always been good that he's had and that kept me interested. But other than that, I think, you know, David Gilmore has shown that he is the better, you know, writer slash producer in my eyes, I think, as far as the music that I enjoy. You know who doesn't get a lot of credit? I'm just going to throw this name out there. On guitar, or Roger Waters. Of course, we think of Brommel, but um, Sir Weatherlow. No, 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 G. Smith came late. He he was an add-on, and they invented some some spots for him to solo that weren't necessarily appropriate in my view. So, uh, yeah, but Andy Fairweather Lowe um, Mm. was was for years uh, with Roger, and just a very classy dude. Yeah. Oh, I I agree. There was a there was a song. I think it was a driving to Beirut or something like that. There was a song on one of his live tours that he did. It was it was not on an album. It was just like a song that he wrote for the tour, I think. And Andy Fairweather Lowe came out with this really cool Strat. I always loved it because it was... Strats usually have three single-coil pickups. And this Strat that he had had, like, two humbuckers, but they were placed really oddly. Like, one was where the bridge is, and then the other one is where the middle pickup would be. And there was no front pickup at all. It was, like, this really odd-looking Strat. But he would play this really, you know, cool kind of vibrato-toned Fender amp sound for that song and i thought he was a really good guitar player you know i i think that he was brought there as sort of like you know almost like a mentor capacity where he was like you know the very experienced guy (laughs) of the of the band and he kind of you know kept everybody in check and he kind of showed everybody what it is to be professional that guy played fantastic every single time i've seen him on bootlegs you know even on the you know stuff that comes out officially He's a great, great guitar player. But even Dave Kilmister, who came out later, oh. that guy, wow. Like, he is really guy. a good guitar player, that guy. You know, and he played he played the David Gilmore stuff really good. But uh, honestly, yeah. I think the one guy that doesn't get enough credit, in my opinion, and I'm curious to see what you guys think, is John Karen. I think that his, <laughs> uh, his yeah. input is, is really overlooked. I mean, the guy sings he plays a lot of the lap steel mm-hmm. he plays a lot of the keyboard stuff i mean mm-hmm. he's really one of those elements of the band that if the power went off on his side of the stage there'd be some trouble yeah when in one of our episodes we debated why he never did a solo album right he's releasing <laughs> songs now oh yes okay yeah he's if you go on his actual facebook page he's just released a song like yesterday i think well there you go oh. Yeah, I mean, John John Karen did bubble up to the top of our conversation here recently as we've we've spoken to some some people, uh, you know, and, and John has has the interesting distinction, if I recall correctly, of of being with both Gilmore Floyd as well as as live Roger, uh, and and you know, not a lot of people have done both sides of that, you know, post nineteen eighty seven. So that was that was interesting, sort of the the way he came up and and dealt with with both sides of of the of the family so to speak but you, but you know how that happened though i don't I mean, actually it, it's funny because when they when they, when i was watching an interview about that john karen said that he was approached to join the roger waters band he went to david gilmore and said hey listen i'm being approached by his end of things his management to come and play on there and you know what david gilmore told him yes you should do it you really must he's a fantastic brilliant musician 
That's exactly what he told him. And he went and did it. He had the full blessing of David Gilmore to go and do it. You know, so that's the one thing I kind of like about British people. I mean, I might be being kind of stereotypical saying this, but I've always found that British people, when they have grudges, they they can hold a grudge, but they can still be incredibly professional and polite about that person at the same time. Yeah, we we talked we talked about yeah. that when you get into the uh, into the era of highest tension between David and Roger. The you know <laughs> you you don't have to read very look very hard to, to read between the lines and what they're saying, but all the words they use are generally pretty polite, even though you yeah. know <laughs> that they kind of want to throttle each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i mean even that, that famous video of them when they were rehearsing and they mm. happen to be in the same rehearsal oh, studio area so and they awkward. walk up to each other like hello and as they can tell it's so like tension is in the air right oh, right when that's happening it's you uncomfortable know? to watch yeah you know but you know they, they they seem to still be able to see each other shake their shake, shake each other's hands and just get on with things i mean i think at this point i would like to think at this point they're just going to move on and get get going with things, but I mean, Roger clearly, you know, not. apparently, yeah, is having issues it with it. He yeah, because it he's still babbling on his on his YouTube channel. There's like, oh god, like <laughs> really again? You know, he's going to go on with this again? Like it just he won't let it go. It's almost like one of those people that hates being second, and he's going to just keep you know nudging and bugging people until he's finally acknowledged as number one. You know, I mean, he doesn't like being viewed as number two. But you know what? I think at this point, he shouldn't look at it that way. He had a, quite a few very successful tours. Those Walls tours that he did were, were very well attended. You know, even as far back as the one that he did in Germany there, when they when they went through the actual place where the wall was, you know, knocked down. That was one of his very first big yeah. concerts that he had after he mm-hmm. left Floyd. You know, so I think that, you know, he doesn't need to be so bitter about it anymore. I don't know if you you caught this a couple a couple of months ago when Roger sort of wouldn't let it go and he was taking to Instagram and YouTube and you know dropping videos mm-hmm. and he was giving Gilmore a hard time about not um, promote you know allowing Roger to use his his website. Uh, coincidentally, that was right around the same time that Joe had his little blow up about about uh, <laughs> Roger Waters, but. Mm-hmm. He was quite subtly, without any kind of fanfare, on Spotify, the Pink Floyd Spotify channel, artist page, released the original version of Have a Cigar with Roger Waters singing it. The one that was deemed unacceptable and they had to to, uh, bring in an outside vocalist. And it, it, I just thought it was just the greatest response of of, of all time. Uh, just I'm just going to release something that I know Roger doesn't want anyone to hear, uh, and just going to put it up there for my 12 million followers to uh, to enjoy. Yeah, I, I, you know, not that, that's what I mean with the whole yeah the British way of doing things. You know, it, it sometimes it doesn't require saying anything; it's just mm-hmm. doing something to show <laughs> your retaliation to what people do. You know it. You know, and I find it very, very sad almost in a way because, I mean, they're at the point in their life when I would think that they would try to maybe just put the water under the bridge and just, you know, at least go into the sun sunset with kind of saying, you know what, 
we, we did a lot of great stuff together. Yeah. You know, we should look back at it and kind of say, you know, we did really good and, you know, just get, just get over it. I mean, it reminds me of some of my family members. I mean, some of my family members hold grudges for friggin' <laughs> 30, 40 years. It's unbelievable how they are, but you know, I've, some of them have cleared it up. So I have hope for others to do the same, but you know, this band, it's funny. We were, we we're talking about Pink Floyd, and rather than talking about some of the music in the albums, we talked about so many different aspects of the <laughs> of the band, you know. But that's what this band is kind of about. Uh, a lot of the times, it's it's turned out to be the band that it's more fun to talk about the drama of it than the music of it, and I think that's kind of sad because there's a lot of good music mm. to be had on here, you know. Uh, and some of their tours have been absolutely stellar, like that whole, uh, you know. The tour that they did for uh, the the Vision Belt was just fantastic. Oh yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. I, I I saw that tour shortly after I moved to Texas, and I have no idea with whom I saw it, or or why I managed to to get in there. I believe it was probably I probably saw it with with some of my brother's friends, but I remember it was at the old um, the old Texas Stadium where the Cowboys used to play it was the one with the hole in the roof okay. and, and everything else. And I, I, I remember where we were sitting and I remember so much about, about that, that tour and, and that show. And it was just, it was awe inspiring. And to hear, you know, the, the people, um, I believe it's, um, is it Andy Jackson, the, the sound guy who mm. talks about that in, in the Lost Order conversation. And he's like, you know, when you work for, when you worked for Pink Floyd in, in the early nineties, I mean, you did things on a scale that no one else would do. And, you know, it, it was, it was a spectacle. It, it really was. One of the things that really, you know, shocked me. And I made mention of this when, when we did, uh, we also have an episode that will come out on the, the live shows of the wall. And what I didn't realize was the big circular screen actually, you know, dates back to 1980 and the the live wall shows mm -hmm. i thought that yeah. was that was a david gilmore construct but in fact it was david gilmore you know sort of utilizing as much of the heritage of pink floyd as he needed to to uh to create the shows that he did so i don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily because you know, he was just as much a part of the band as Roger was, obviously. It's, and if Roger wanted to use it, he could have used it. There's nothing stopping him from doing it, right? Yeah, it's it's totally legit. Like I said, I just I came on the train right around. I mean, I knew of of Pink Floyd via the wall that was on the radio, as we talked about. But really, a momentary lapse of reason was 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 where I got onto the train. So I was just, I was programmed David Gilmore from the beginning. In my youthful exuberance, I always assumed that anything David did was was right and, you know, <laughs> little little <laughs> did I know. it was not. <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. much. But, you know, it, yeah. it, and it's, it is a shame when you talk about the drama and everything else, because with Richard gone and, you know, just the three of them at this point, you know, there there could be some opportunity if they didn't hold these grudges. But what are you going to do? You sort of um, maybe called us out for spending too much time talking about, you know, things other than the music. It, are there any aspects of the music that really resonate with you that maybe you want to make sure that we cover that we haven't so um, far? Well, I, I think that uh, one of the things that I always found interesting about Pink Floyd records 
is their attention to detail on the production end of stuff. I mean, as far back as Dark Side of the Moon, you know, I mean, Alan Parsons did such a fantastic job with that. I mean, I, I'm sure all of you guys have seen that, you know, making of DVD when they go into, and he pulls up the tracks and he shows you how he added all these effects to the backing vocals and this and that and how dry some of the stuff could be. And, you know, it's th those are the kind of things I always dug about Pink Floyd. And, I mean, there was always these great footage of the the boat recording studio, yeah. too, where they were in there recording stuff and working on stuff there. I love that boat. Yeah, I think that, honestly... The Astoria. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> thank, thank you, I, I think that I think that it's uh, something that I think I would personally love seeing more of or hearing more about because it's a part of the sound. Uh, the the thing about Pink Floyd that I love is their their sound. They have a unique sound. You know what I mean? And it's something that um, I find interesting because the making of Wish You Were Here. They had uh, the guy who was engineering for them at that point. He he was on the on the DVD of the making of, and he he brings up all the tracks, and you get to hear David David's attempt of have a cigar, and you know yeah. you also hear Roger's attempt at it, and you know it's. It's fascinating the lengths that they go to to get the sound that they want. Like, I always love that whole story of them setting up David's guitar in Abbey Road Studio One, that huge studio, just to do that four-note sequence at the beginning. Da -na -na -na. Mm -hmm. Like, they did it in there to get that effect. Right. You know what I mean? And, I mean, that that's commitment because, you know, at that point they did have, you know, reverb and stuff like that that they could have added to try to get that same sort of effect but they went for the real deal and did it naturally you know what i mean and it's those kind of stories i love hearing about when they do when they put in amps in different rooms and they you know they, they show roger fiddling with the very new sequencers at the time and the keyboards when they were doing on the run and stuff like that like you know i don't think they sometimes get enough credit for these little things that they did that bands picked up on later and started adding into their own, you know, music. I mean, when you see um, uh, Jordan Rudis go out and bring a huge contraption with them that looks like something that would have came out of the studio in Abbey Road when they were working on Dark Side of the Moon, when they did their tribute to Dark Side of the Moon, they performed the whole record live. I mean... Come on, I mean, that shows you the impact of that. But, you know, he puts his wizard hat on there and he goes back there, starts <laughs> twiddling knobs and going nuts with the sequencer there. Bands just weren't doing that back then. I mean, do people realize that? That the bands were not doing that. They were the ones that started doing this kind of stuff, you know? And, you know, the other bands, you know, were, were doing keyboard stuff later too. I mean, you have like, yes. Who were doing stuff, but they didn't very. They were very hands-on stuff. You know what I mean? Like Rick Wakeman was all about playing the keyboards himself and twisting the knobs here and there on the Moog, but they never had kind of like crazy running sequence lines like that. You know, right. or tape-looped hi hats. You know, going going on like that. They they did everything, you know, real time, and it. You know, think about that back in those days. Doing that was very risky, you know what I mean? Because it, it could go, it can go bad in a minute, and then you're kind of screwed, you know what I yeah. mean? So, it, that's I, I've always appreciated that about those guys that they did those kinds of things, you know. 
Roger going up there and hitting the gong and not even playing a note of bass for half of the set to control for you know what I mean? Like it's those kind of things where you don't imagine bands doing that. Like how many, like imagine saying that to your band member, like, okay, for this song, I don't want you to play bass until like, you know, the last 45 seconds of the song. And I just want you to sing and just hit this gong every once in a while. Like people look at you and say, what the hell is this guy talking about? You know, (laughs) you know, and, but they were willing to see a big picture and kind of an experience. And they know that that was just as much, I think, performance art as much as it was musical art, you know, because to see, to watch this guy sitting there like, you know, hitting this gigantic gong and, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, stage kind of showmanship going on there doing that too. Right. So they kept it entertaining as well, you know, because, you know, Pink Floyd was never that band that, you know, threw the guitar around their necks or ran up and down the stage and, you know, started pointing at girls. Yeah, baby. You know, like, you know, they were not that band, you know, they were very much standing in one position most of the time and play mm. and play some fantastic music. So uh, I think that it should be remembered. You know, I'll, I'll kind of just make this as my kind of grandiose statement. I think people need to remember Pink Floyd. It's about the music. It's not about the drama. Well said. Absolutely. Nice. I, I, I agree. And, and we certainly are guilty of getting ourselves caught up in the drama and the lore. Maybe more than, Maybe more than we ought. Although we do go pretty deep into the music as well once we get there. So, mm-hmm. oh, I was just about to uh, ask Mark if he wanted to force rank album cover art, maybe the top five and one from the bottom. <laughs> I'm glad you sure. asked, Ken. I wanted to, but I wasn't going to. Okay, we were so- accused of not talking about music enough, but fuck it. We like to talk about album covers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my top five Floyd covers, to me, it's pretty simple, actually. My favorite album cover is Momentary Lapse of Reason. I've always loved that. Nice. If, nice. If, if just for the effort that it must have took to lay out all those damn beds <laughs> on that beach, mm-hmm. you know, yep. and then to realize, uh, hurry up, guys, I don't think we're going to be able to do it. The tide's coming in. Okay, everybody get the beds off. Mm-hmm. And wait till the tide goes away, and then like, we're putting it back on again. Okay, okay? Yep. like that's dedication. Okay, yep. right there. Okay. Uh, number two favorite album cover is has always been Wish You Were Here. I've always loved that kind of whole fiery guy handshake thing going on there. Yeah. I always thought it was a interesting thing. And you know th- that's the one thing about their covers is that they're never simple to do. You know what I mean? Like nowadays, sure, you can have all these kind of different effects and you can do kinds of stuff with screens and stuff like that to maybe recreate it. But again, Pink Floyd were doing all these things. And the people that worked with them were all doing these things in real time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they literally lit a guy on fire and had a camera ready to take a picture of him <laughs> before he burst into, you know, total flames and was charred at the end of it in 30 seconds. What yeah. a fantastic sentence to say. <laughs> <laughs> real time. Yeah. I, I heard that animals was painted in real time. <laughs> but that would be maybe one exception. They 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 tried for it at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the other uh, one well, that was my number two. Number three has always been Dark Side of the Moon. I've always thought that that was a very strong album cover. I mean, as minimalistic as it is, it's it's the, you you have to admit that if you took a piece of paper and drew that triangular pyramid and then just do a couple of colors on one end and then like a beam of light through the other, everybody on this planet would probably know what you're drawing. You yeah. know what I mean? 
and that's the sign of a fantastic album cover, I think, because you don't even need to put the band's name on it. And I think people would know what you're talking about. I, you I, know? As, yeah. as a quick aside here, there, <laughs> there is a house in the town right next to where I live uh, called Roanoke, Texas. And I don't know if it's there all year round or if it's just during the Christmas season, but they recreate the prism in Christmas lights on their roof. Well, really? Yeah, it's really? it's wow. really cool. Next next time I see it, I'll have to take a picture because I, I I hadn't thought about it until just right this moment. But I'm like, oh, there's that house in Roanoke. So, it, but it is <laughs> you know exactly what it is. It's amazing. You have to yeah. broadcast live from there, Joe. You can't just take a picture. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we'll do that. So so sorry to interrupt you, Mark. We're we're we covered number three, so now we're on to number four. Okay, so number four for me is uh the division belt. I've always loved that whole. Those those faces like that whole Easter Island sort of effect mm. that he had on there. I thought it was very striking, and uh, I, I remember when I first saw that album cover, I was, it, it immediately pulled me in. I mean, that's the one thing about Pink Floyd album covers is that they're, they're never really too dull. I mean, sure, there are some things that you know will will you know not be as exceptional as these ones are, of course, but. Th those were always the ones that kind of stuck out in my mind and are easy to remember. I mean, I can I can see these covers in my mind, you know, right away. I don't have to think about them. You know, if you if you tell me like you know what's the what remember that Bandigraph Generator album cover? I'd be like, no, nah, I have no clue what you're talking about. You know, like there's certain albums that you know they just don't have strong enough artwork to you know recur a thought of them. Now that brings me to my number five, and. You might laugh at this one, but I've always, always loved the Adam Hart Mother Cow. Yeah, That's always nice. been a, a fantastic Ooh. cover. I thought, uh, what I, why I thought it was a good cover is because number one, it has absolutely nothing to do with the title. I think, in my opinion, I, I, I just think that it's just a, a cow that's just staring at the camera. I mean, really, what, what could you get out of that picture? You know what I mean? So to me, it's just a, a picture that they just took that they were amused with and figured that it would be a good thing to put on an album cover. The, the real crime in it, I think, is that they didn't think of an album title to go and fit with it. You know what I mean? Mm. Because I think that the image in itself is kind of amusing, you know, and shows a little bit of that, you know, humorous side. You know, maybe it's maybe it's British humor. Maybe we don't get it, you know. But it's it's one of those things that I think that it's a it's a memorable cover. And, and to me, those five album covers are memorable. I can always recur recall them. I can always kind of, you know, when when I talk to my friends and say, you know, that Pink Floyd record, the one with the cow, people right away know what I'm talking about. They're not mm. saying, oh, what one? There's like seven other albums with a cow on it. No, there's not. There's just that, really. <laughs> you know? That's the only album I can think of that has a cow on it. You know? And as far as my... Uh, the one I dislike the most... <clears throat> excuse me. The one I dislike the most, I mean, that that's kind of difficult because I, I think that there are some covers that are just weak overall. I mean, one could say Obscured by Clouds is a weak cover because it's really just, you know, a bunch of bubbles and stuff like that on there. One can say that, you know, Metal is kind of, you know, a weak cover because until, you know, years after the fact, I didn't realize that it was an ear. Right. That cover. Right. You yeah. would have never told me, I would have never guessed that that's an ear. You know what I mean? Uh, and 
I guess I would have to say that the one that I like the least probably would be probably just metal. I mean, that's the, that's the one I, I don't like because it's one of those things where when people told me that what it was, I was really annoyed that I didn't, yeah. that it just, it doesn't seem that way to me at all. You know what I mean? Like you could easily say, you know, the final cut, you know, there's nothing really to it. You know, you could say, you know, whatever obscured by clouds is very, you know, nothing to it as well. You know, but even something like, you know, more, you know, for example, more is a album cover that kind of has, I'm guessing something to do more with the movie. So mm. you can't really, you know, fault it for that. I mean, the, the Endless River, for example, I think is a fantastic album cover, but is a weak record, in my opinion. You know, I've never liked that record. I mean, it's the only Pink Floyd record that I've ever owned that I've literally brought back to the store and got my money back. Wow. You can do wow. that? What? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's Stunning. crazy. How do you feel about the cover of Amagama? Because uh, <laughs> there was some distance between some of us on, on that one. I, I actually like that cover. Yeah, I did um, too. I like it because I like that whole idea of the person changing in the chair. Like when on one on one one picture, it's you know David sitting in the chair, and then there's another shot where uh, you know Roger sitting in the chair. You know that that whole thing I kind of thought was kind of interesting. You know, it it makes you kind of look on what's happening in the photograph altogether when these things kind of change. I think that that's kind of a, a interesting thing to do. And I I wow. mean, as far as art goes. I think that the the whole hypnosis people were at their, you know, strongest. I think when when they were when they were doing like "Wish You Were Here," like that whole photograph of the guy, yeah. you know, doing the handstand in the water yeah. and having to sit perfectly still in there to get that photograph. I mean, come on, like, try try convincing somebody to do that now. Any other things that we need to cover that we haven't covered already at this point? Are you asking me? Or are you asking those guys? I'm asking everybody. I'm kind of curious. Uh, you know that whole set that came out, that huge box set that they put out from the early year stuff. You know how they said that they had those those. Mm-hmm. Then I came in that little van package yep. there. That did any of you guys actually buy that? Uh, no, I'm not that I'm aware of. Because no. I, I I always figured that you know those kind of things are for the real, real, real like diehard Floyd fan. I mean, it, it's pretty pricey, and and I think that. Some of the material on there, I mean, you got to be really into Pink Floyd to to buy some of that stuff. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think so. I've I've looked at the the later years box set simply because it has uh, what interests me. There are some of the audio content. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to be able to see the the Venice show. Um, they have mm-hmm. a couple other you know uh, concert videos there. I'd love to see when. When uh, again on the Lost Art of Conversation, when Poe Powell talks about the updated visuals for the Delicate Sound of Thunder, it just makes me yeah. want to look at it. I, you know, I, I want to see how beautiful it is with the way he gushes about it. Um, and, and and there's a part of me that initially wanted to hear the updated uh, momentary lapse of reason, but I I did manage when we were doing that album to hear several of the updated tracks and like paul you know i was i was kind of left yearning for the original maybe more than i would have thought so yeah that, that's it's very interesting i mean the other thing that i found interesting too is the whole uh 
folklore behind David Gilmore's instruments. Like the whole thing with him when he went and sold off his gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that whole thing with, with the black strat going for like over two million dollars. I mean, there again, I think kind of shows the power of Pink Floyd. I mean, <laughs> that Stratocaster, if you think about it, if you were to take that strat, you know, hide it away and bring it out five years later, never telling somebody that that was a guitar owned by David Gilmore. If you took it to any kind of music store, they'd probably look at it and say, yeah, I'll give you 900 bucks. Right. Yeah, like right. seriously, that's what they would, they would say right. because you know, it's, it's no, there's nothing out of the ordinary on that guitar as far as what parts are. I mean, he will, he'll, he'd even tell you that himself, you know, he changed maybe a pickup here and something here and there. And had maybe a little switch here and there added for for whatever reason for maybe like a phase you know split or something, and um, but that, but that's about but that's about it, yeah. So, but for it to sell two million dollars has everything to do with the fact that David Gilmore played those solos on it oh, and yeah. played those songs on it. Yeah, you know, it has nothing to do with that guitar being worth two million dollars. And that that again I find interesting because I looked at those you know prices of what people paid for some of this stuff and it's just unbelievable what some people would pay for some of these things you know but i I do think you know that does speak to you know the power of of this band and um you know that's that's why when we started you know our podcast you know this was always this was always on the list this was always something that we had to get through and in some regards, I'm kind of glad that we did it now after we've kind of gotten into our groove a little bit and we know how we do this and, and you know, we're able to, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think we're able to do it properly. Um, if, if I can, if I can self-congratulate to that, to that effect. So it, 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 it really was an enjoyable segment. And at this point, I think, um, we've probably covered enough. So I want mm-hmm. to thank you, Mark, again. It's always a pleasure to have you on and love just, you know, talking about the music that we all love together. Your, your, your insights are, are very refreshing. So um, look forward to having you back next time. And, uh, you know, thanks again. Appreciate it. Yeah, I look forward to being back again. Indeed, Mark. Um, uh, I'm not a vinyl collector. I don't intend to be. I'm not a collector of any sort. But I live vicariously through uh, the info and the experiences of you and Joe. And uh, uh, keep keep purchasing so I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Agreed. We, we will continue for you. enjoyed this conversation as always we've enjoyed sharing it with you and look forward to your thoughts comments feedback and question on pink floyd or any other topic that came up here this evening twitter instagram or facebook we are at prog paula on all of those or search for progressive palaver um you're welcome to email us our email address is prog paula that's p-r-o-g-p-a-l-a at gmail.com Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, at some point, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.